Welcome back to The Dad Chronicle. I'm your host, Alex Albisu. This is episode 69. Now, before we get started, I want to thank all of our patrons. If you head over to thedadchronicle.com and you are a patron subscribing at the $10 a month or more mark, you will see our very first patron-only episode. I am starting up a new monthly mini-series that's going to be available to you folks, and uh, it's going to be a lot more um, introspective, reflective sort of observations of parenthood, kind of a more one-on-one sort of feel with the podcast rather than these stories that we've been telling so far. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be very valuable. Um, So if you aren't subscribed to that level or more, definitely head over to thedadchronicle.com, hit that become a patron button, and you can uh, take advantage of this really valuable stuff that's going to be coming out monthly. Now, in today's episode, I talked to somebody I really look up to a lot. This is Wendy Dunford. You've likely heard Wendy's work on the morning stream. She comes on every Thursday and she's a licensed therapist. Now, based on some of the feedback that I've heard from folks who listen to this show, you guys really enjoyed um, Jerry's episode specifically, uh, bringing subject matter experts onto the show to talk about specific subjects as it relates to parenting. In his case, it was all about vaccinations, some, some medical stuff in general, Uh, And and that was very well received. Now, recognizing that, I wanted to bring somebody else on. And you're going to notice she's not a dad. She's a mom. She's a parent. She's a licensed therapist. And she has a lot of value to bring to the conversation about parenting. I think that it's really important to bring uh, a vast perspective. And I, I loved having this conversation with Wendy. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. The first thing that we talk about is this stigma around therapy and how therapy can actually really help your children and your family. And when it comes to your kid, you're still going to have to tackle the stigma that what is whatever your baggage is because your kid doesn't have the baggage yet. We also talk about how to deal with negative self-talk. If it doesn't get out and processed, and that can be writing, that can be speaking, um, it will. It, it's like there's a bizarre echo chamber in there and things can get pretty toxic and messy. We also talk about a really important topic, how to deal with postpartum depression. The logical answers to help someone feel better who is feeling terrible is by addressing the things they feel terrible about and we're going to make it better. And, you know, and it's literally the worst thing you can do. Here's my conversation with Wendy Dunford. Hello, Wendy Dunford. Welcome to the Dad Chronicle. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So you are making history and I sound like a terrible person that should exist in like the 2019. Is that the year we're in where I haven't had a woman on the show yet except my wife? Right. Oh, I, I hadn't realized your wife had been on. I was thinking I was first. No. Oh, well, well so you I know, second. Wife, do, second. Yeah, wife doesn't count. She's she's <laughs> like uh, obligated to do this with me. She just brought a human being into the world you out know. of her body. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, but you are you are here because, um, you know, I, I wanted the world to hear more about the, the, the value that you bring to TMS and, uh, and some of the work that you do in general around uh, therapy and, and hear more about what you have to say about destigmatizing therapy in general. So before we really dive into that, uh, why don't we take a moment to introduce you to the world? Um, would you like to do the honors? Sure. Hi, everybody. I, my name is Wendy Dunford, and I am a licensed independent clinical social worker. Um, my background's in all sorts of things, and currently I am in private practice and just mainly working with adults because I have four children, and I don't want to talk to any children. 
Um, and so, yeah, that, that keeps me busy. And I, of course, uh, TMS, which you referred to, I, I show up there on Thursdays and give advice and it's you yeah. know, exciting. It's super awesome. Now, how long have you been doing it privately now? Uh, let's see, uh, going on 10 years, almost 10 years. That's amazing. Do you, yeah. you enjoy it? I do. I do. I like the flexibility. Uh, it helps balance out my mom life. Um, cause it's tough to take care of children and all their crazy goings on. And so yeah. it's, uh, my schedule is pretty flexible that way. So it's great. Yeah. Very good. And, uh, do you mind telling us, uh, the, about your kids? Yeah, sure. So I have, let's see, I have four of them. One is 16, one's 13, 10, and 7. And the oldest is a girl, and the three youngest are boys. And they're exhausting. What else do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, no, that, that says it. So uh, going into the teen years, that's got to be fun. You, you no, enjoying that? Not. No, not at all. Oof. So it's funny. I did my initial training with kids, and that was all my, you know, I just thought I just want to work with kids and uh, kids who've been sexually abused in particular, any kind of abuse and neglect. And I dove straight into that. And then I worked with offenders. And so I had a, you know, a lot of pretty intense training. And then when we started our family, it was like this switch went off in my head while I was pregnant. And I was like, Oh, and I can't do this. I can't do it. <laughs> this, this doesn't work. So I, uh, sort of not had to fully retrain, but quite a bit with adults and, um, with very different problems than that original group. And so, so I could, uh, psychologically handle it. So that was my initial foray into therapy it had a lot to do with parenting, um, and needing to parent and needing to be emotionally available for kids. Um, because they take a lot of energy. Right. And so now as my kids are getting older and they're teenagers, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk to a teenager with a 10 foot pole. Cause I feel like I just don't understand anything about them where I used to think I got them, but I was wrong. Um, and I, I joke with my kids when they are grown ups, then I'm going to go back to working with kids probably. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, cause I love listening to the way that you and Scott talk about your kids on the shows, uh, that, you know, you guys interact on. Um, so th it's, it's a lot of fun to be able to sit down with you, uh, tonight and talk about a, uh, a topic that kind of affects me personally as somebody who kind of deals with a little bit of anxiety. I talked about it on the show. Um, I, I deal with anxiety. Um, and I've mentioned, you know, how I handle that with a variety of things. Um, I've kind of fallen off the bandwagon with things like, uh, meditation and some things like that. But, and I've been like, yeah, why don't I just start doing that again? And you can definitely tell when things, uh, that you used to do to kind of treat some of these, um, anxious, uh, thoughts and other things when you stop doing them. Yeah. You feel it. Um, so I, I kind of, uh, I related a lot to some of the work that you've done on TMS, talking to people uh, in similar situations, bringing that now full circle into what we're talking about today on the Dad Chronicle. Uh, it took me a long time personally for me to accept that, hey, you know, there's something going on in my head. I have to be able to handle it and talk about it. And so uh, this is very uh, helpful. And I'm sure that a lot of the listeners out there are going to get a lot out of this. So do appreciate you being here, Wendy. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy yes. to do that. So let's, uh, let's talk about therapy um, because, you know, there's a stigma around it. And parents, uh, really and anybody, adults, kids, it's the idea of going to this place and you got to talk about things that you're uncomfortable with. They may uh, judge you for 
feeling a little crazy at times. What do you say about the stigma surrounding therapy? Well, so everyone's got their own sort of story of why they may feel the stigma. There may just be sort of the general one that exists in the community that you live in. Um, and, and it kind of comes about by you hear someone make a joke about someone or, or, or we often use, I think I already used the word crazy. You know, we tend to have it in our sort of vernacular that's sort of dismissive or categorizes someone else or, you know, and all of that subtlety, sometimes it's very overt, but all of that subtlety sort of adds up to uh, only people like that over there do therapy and it's because they have problems and they're not good and I'm not one of them. So when, you know, a crisis arises or the, you know, the slow, you know, creeping of middle age woes or, you know, whatever it may be, um, increasing anxiety, more stress, whatever it may be, we, we don't maybe have access to this form of help readily because we've got to break through the ways we've thought about it. Um, and it can be sometimes super direct, like mom and dad said to us, only weak people get help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they, you know, sort of shared that in various ways. And so you've really internalized that. So no way am I that person. Um, and so we have a lot of maybe inner self-talk, maybe it's really overt talk in your neighborhood, um, that you're battling. And then there's folks who just, aren't raised with that. So they don't have quite the same barrier. So everyone's going to be a little bit different. And I I, I also have sort of a, a running theory of like, kind of, I don't know if it's completely socioeconomic based, but I think there is definitely like, you know, maybe wealthier folks are like, I have a hairdresser and a lawn guy and a therapist and my, you know, investment banker. Like they, <laughs> They, they have a guy that does all the things they need done, and they obviously can afford to do those things. So the stigma there might be um, not might not exist there. Whereas I think maybe for, for folks who are having to work really hard and, you know, to make a living and, you know, it's it's kind of on their shoulders to do life, that is just a leap. First of all, a financial leap can be, you know, really daunting to try to pay for treatment, especially if your health insurance is like the majority of health insurances. It's not, doesn't cover a lot. Um, and so it's really hard to maybe see that I deserve this help. Like a rich person might think I deserve my personal nail salon or whatever, you know? Um, so I think, I think there's a, a lot of things going on for a lot of different people. And, and so maybe what I would say is, you know, whatever your background story is, sort of think it through. Like, what messages have you heard? Where does that come from? Who's the person you'd be the most embarrassed to tell to tell that you're going to therapy or you're taking your kids to therapy? And that's going to give you a pretty pretty um, big hint as to what your sort of background story is and why it's so strong. So, if that main person you would never want to tell is a family member then likely your home life had included certain messages about maybe getting help or weakness or whatever. Um, if that person you don't want to tell is your next door neighbor, well, it might be your community um, or your friend or your spouse or whatever. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a good little exercise to figure that out. Um, but then here's what's great about the dad chronicles is we're going to talk about this other level when it, we're talking about ourselves, like, Oh, I need this help kind of depends on your personality, but I think a lot of people will just suffer a lot longer than they need to because I can do it. Well, maybe if I just eat better, exercise more, you know, we, there's a tendency to 
delay getting help that way. But when it's our kid, it's like a, it's like it lights a fire in your brain. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's scary. My, my child's not maybe acting completely okay. Someone at school has mentioned they have concerns. The principal's pulled me aside. I don't want to see it. This is, you know, it's, it's terrifying. Right. Um, and maybe pa- pediatrician is the one who's saying, Hey, you know, here's some numbers. Let's maybe check some stuff out. Yeah. And so we can talk about that, what to do then. And when it comes to your kid, you're still going to have to tackle the stigma that what is whatever your baggage is, because your kid doesn't have the baggage yet, unless you've been at home drilling your four-year-old on therapies for wimps or something. You know, it's, <laughs> it's your stuff that's in the way. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of parents are pretty motivated to help their kids. And so I think they get over those barriers fairly quickly, um, hopefully. And then, you know, they can get their kids some, some help. Um, and I would just suggest this is if it has crossed your mind, because here's our problem. I get it. Listen, I've had terrible health insurance my entire life. Like my kid, I'm like, is it broken? Is it bleeding? Will you die if we don't go to the doctor? <laughs> if the answer's no, then suck it up because I'm not going to pay $14,000. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I get so it. It's terrible. And I think, um, you know, so, so I get the hesitation. You, you want it to be a flaming wreck before you're like, let's go get help. Right. But mental health is very different. And now a, a doctor might argue with me that physical health is just the same, but I, I'm living in denial about that. I'm good at the mental health part, not good at the physical <laughs> health. Um, but the earlier you seek treatment, you're going to cut your treatment time in half. I mean, it is, it's preventative. It's you start when they're younger, the better. I think, unfortunately, we tend to wait until they're, you know, 14 and they're so annoying or something. And then we're just like, all right, let's do it. And, you know, at that point, they're so much less open to getting the help um, that they need. Right. So, you know, the earlier, the better. And I, and I know that can be pretty challenging. Um, and I have, a, I have a story about a great way to bust up um, the stigma. Oh, please. Yeah, that's actually something I wanted to to actually touch on. So this is perfect. That's my okay. next question. So I'll tell you a story with my own kids. Okay. So, um, when my fourth child was born, he had all of his intestines on the outside of his body. So you can, you can see why I hate health insurance because, oh boy, that was a, that was rough. Um, and you know, it was scary and you know, everything worked out great. He had the best possible case. You know, he was in the hospital half the normal amount of time, which was still three weeks, but oh he did awesome. He was yeah. a big kid. Worked out great. I'm sitting here but with like my, my mouth like open because I had no idea that that right. happened. That's I know, it's nuts. crazy. Well, and he has a really cute fake belly button if you ever want to check it out. Um, because, <laughs> you know, that's, and he's very proud of it. But uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll avoid, you know, being that strange yeah, man who walks up. Hey, can I see you. your belly button? <laughs> so it's, it's, it was a long time ago now. So he's, let's see, he's seven and a half. So seven and a half years ago, this, this happens. And at the time, my one son is, was six. And, he started having challenges that were related to this, but he wasn't saying them out loud, right? He was just having a little more trouble at school with particular things. And like, I would, we'd, we'd get mad at him and try to get him to, you know, it was just so different that we just thought he was misbehaving. It didn't dawn on me. And this is the best part, you know, your therapist mom is completely missing the mental health side. <laughs> 
So everyone, we, we all are, we're all going to do this. I promise. Um, anyway, and I'm busy. I've got this kid in the NICU and I've got three other kids and it's hard to kind of navigate everything. So I'm kind of ignoring him at the same time. This is getting a little bit worse. And it dawns on me that I am the cobbler not making shoes for my kid. Yeah. So I call my friend who's a, th- a kid therapist and I said, what, let me tell you what's happening. I ran through the, his symptoms and ran through what was going on and and she was perfect. She was like, I know you think you can do this. And you've got it in your head. Like, you understand it. You know the techniques that would work to help him. You, you know, did it. You cannot. You are his mom. That should never be your role. I'm like, mm. oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> tough to hear because here you are as a, a licensed therapist. Like, you should be able to do this. Right. And save us a bunch of money is what I was also <laughs> thinking. You know. Fair enough. So in the end, I listened to her because she's wise and I was, you know, exhausted. And I found, um, it was actually her mentor that we, I took him to. So, and this woman did play therapy. And so if you are a parent listening and think my kid is insane, see, there I go, throwing the words. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> words and matter. I gotta, need help, yeah. then you Google play therapist near you yeah. right now. They're fantastic. Um, and so play therapy is a lot of different things, um, but a big portion of it, obviously, is play. The kid is playing. They have big sand trays and all these toys and just everything you can think of. And so we we go to her house, and it was the most magical place I've ever been. First of all, I, we walk into her house, and there's just this beautiful river behind her house and, like, forest. And so it just looked. But the house had not been um, updated since, I think, 1975. Oh, so wow. it felt like walking back in time. And where was this? <laughs> was so this great. like, was this here in the state? No, I guess it was here in the States. It was, it was, it was okay. when we were living in Utah yeah. and she was just amazing. And it was like walking back in time. It was the safest, most loving place. It was awesome. We walk in, there's toys everywhere. And I, I drop him off. I go back to the waiting room and it's like the biggest relief. I don't have to do this. This is, it's not, I can't do it. And here's this person who's ridiculously qualified to help me do this. You know, she'd been in practice, I think, 30 years. She was amazing. Anyway. But was there, just out of curiosity, was there any bit of, like, insecurity that was going through your mind after dropping him off and and kind of leaving with somebody else to go through the therapy? Or did you have 100% confidence? 100% confidence, mainly because, and this is always a challenge, so getting help yourself or getting help for your child is you don't know these people. Whereas in my case, uh, this woman is semi-famous um, in circles because she'd started this entire therapy program for kids who were grieving um, because of deaths by suicide mm. and, you know, young kids whose parents had passed away. So she was well-known and she was, I mean, so it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't, I would drop my kid off with Freud, but it would be like the the version of Freud, like, oh, we know that person yeah. and my direct referral and my friend reassuring me. So I, at the point, and, and then it's my gut. I walk in and I'm like, oh yeah, I want to do therapy, play therapy. Like I want to sit in this house <laughs> and I'm in the other room. It's not like I'm far, far away, but yes, I had total confidence and the relief was just overwhelming that I didn't have to do this part Very alone, good. you know? Cool. So here's what's great. Two or three sessions, the kid is cured. He's got wow. zero symptoms. He's doing fantastic. And you know what it was all about? And the cool thing is she doesn't, you don't talk much during play therapy. A kid plays it out. They, they sort of, you know, they talk while they're playing and they 
So some of it's verbal, but a lot of it is just expressing, you know, like having a dragon murder a, <laughs> another dragon in a sand tray and <laughs> they feel better or whatever, right? It's kind of magical. Anyway, you know, for him it was, he's a pretty bright mind and he was just, his imagination was going crazy because for the first time in his six young years, he realized that there's a children's emergency room and that there are children with problems and like, you know, those concepts had never occurred to him yeah. and to have his brother, cause it was January. He couldn't see him have his brother, um, be in the NICU. He never got to see him for those first couple of months. Cause it, you know, disease and they didn't want him to bring any, so he could just see him on camera. And you know, he had a, a bag of guts above him cause they, they do, it takes a while and they put them in a, their guts in a little bag above their body. It's pretty gross. I can't and even imagine. So he was kind of freaking out, but he didn't know how to say, oh my gosh, this is really horrifying, everyone. Can you give me a minute? Instead, he was behaving in ways that were saying something's off, something's not right, and she could help him figure out. So here's the best part. So he loved it. He thought it was so fun. And we reinforced all the time, like, it's just totally normal. And it's, it was handy for me to say, hey, and I'm, I, we were in a community where therapy was very stigmatized. Mm -hmm. So, but I said, hey, you know how mom talks to people and helps them? That's what this lady does for kids. So it was like, oh, my mom does this for me, you know? So it was pretty quick for him to trust the process. Yeah. But afterwards, I mean, he bragged to every single kid. He would really? go up to a friend and just say, oh, you should totally go to therapy. It's amazing. <laughs> So he single-handedly. Hey, my mom. Did he did he hand out business cards and stuff? And honestly, I mean, he single-handedly destigmatized a whole neighborhood because he just like he had such great feelings about it. Now that is not going to always be the case, of course, but it tells you a lot about you know the kids picking up on my vibe. Yeah, that this is perfectly okay and important to get help, and that mom does this and you know, it's safe and we love you. And so a yeah. lot of that is modeling, like it's all going to be okay. So if you're not okay with it, your kid's going to pick it up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, um, I actually want to ask about older kids with, uh, you know, in, in this, in this case, you, de you dealt with your son who was a lot younger. How do, um, and you know, teenagers being teenagers doing the teenage thing, how difficult is it for teenagers to really grasp onto therapy? Is there a, a statistic that shows whether or not they truly accept it or uh, is it something that they embrace? Yeah, that is a, that is a tricky thing. Um, and I think a lot of it will depend on their experience. I mean, if, you know, I've, one of the things I do whenever I meet with a new person, I ask about their history of therapy. Who have they worked with and, you know, what's their sort of story? And many people will have had a bad experience as a teenager going to therapy. So I have a lot of work to do with those folks because I'm I'm sort of undoing, trying to repair some of the damage that was done when they were teenagers. And it has a lot to do with parents sort of forcing them to go, uh, the kids the problem, rather than maybe seeing it as the system has a problem. Um, it was, you know, this kid's making us all crazy. And now that I have teenagers it's really tempting. It's really tempting to say you're the problem because if you just acted like a normal, nice person, our family would <laughs> function more smoothly. And I, and I, it's hard for parents. It's hard for us to see that we play a role sometimes in that dysfunction or that, you know, the way we're parenting, it really worked with the first kid, but it's not working with the second, yeah. um, or whatever. And, and so we can have agendas that are 
fix that kid and make my life easier rather than, you know, how do we increase closeness in the family or improve our overall functioning? So that's a big piece is being forced to go. Um, and then having a therapist that maybe doesn't, they don't connect with, which gets to a bit of a challenge, you know, when, when people are seeking out, um, therapists, they're often just like, okay, so I get a referral from somebody I know who's seen someone and they loved them. And so you're like, okay, great. And you get there and you just don't click. Um, I recommend, does that, I mean, I don't know if you're able to talk about it, but like, (laughs) does that happen a lot for you? I can't imagine um, that happens a no, lot. No, and you. I think it's because um, they are. I only really do referral based folks. Like they've either heard me on the show, and so they feel like they already know me. So mm-hmm. they've already self selected uh, for the most part. And then the rest are referrals from former clients, friends of them, or whatever. And so they tend to have already. Um, they're ready for it to work out. And okay. and so sometimes there could be a, a, a personality conflict, but I that kind of rarely happens. I think because they're a bit, they've sort of selected for my style a little. I tend to be more direct um, and I give them a lot of homework and I'm like, let's change this. You know, I get a little excited. And, and someone else might need somebody who is just chill and listens and is very, you know, I listen, but I also will challenge you. And I think, um, some people like that and some people don't. So I don't think they seek me out if they're like, Oh no, I don't want someone who challenges me, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I, and I, my practice is fairly small, so I don't, I don't have a lot of data here, but you know, it can happen. Absolutely. Especially it's really hard when you're just pulling out a name off your insurance list. That can be pretty tricky. Yeah. Um, so one thing I would recommend, you can go to psychologytoday.com and it will show, you can find a therapist near you. You can read their bios. You can look at their pictures I mean, without a direct friend referral to something, that's your best bet. Um, and to just trust your gut. Yeah. Like, I like that person's face. I think I could talk to them. Or the way they've described their therapy seems like it resonates with me. And and it, it sucks because that's all we got, but that's currently how the model works, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I want to actually backtrack even more for a second because something that, that I remember was you talking about the the self-talk so this is something that typically happens to everybody all day every single day that they don't really realize is actually happening in the back of their mind and i often catch myself you know saying some some things that are discouraging that i don't even realize i'm saying subconsciously unless i really reflect on everything that i just experienced and whatever anxious situation i was just in um what are some good tips and tricks for parents especially you know, because that's, yeah. a, that's a that's a whirlwind right there to right. deal with the self-talk. Well, and especially when you're co-parenting, right? Because um, you can listen to your partner, interact with your child, and see their issue maybe from their own childhood emerging as they're parenting. Ah. And you're going, oh, no. Like that, we can't have that happen. Um, and so suddenly you're the expert on, like, look at your childhood baggage running into your parenting but we're so, so bad at doing that with ourselves. So you got to be careful because no partner wants to hear, you know, that weird issue you have with your mom, you're now recreating it with our daughter. You know, that's not, don't do that. That's not going to go over well. Um, but so you can only really work on yourself. And the best way I think to do that is to really get a good sense of what those voices are saying and who they are. So I, I always describe it this way. Um, maybe there's a better way to do it, but I think of it as a bus. You are driving a bus and on that bus, there are various people 
and they will yell out and, and they will yell out, I don't know, maybe it's your teacher from third grade who told you you'd never amount to anything. And so that voice is yelling out like, how dare you think you can accomplish that? You're terrible. If that voice is yelling out and you don't know it's your third grade teacher, what's crazy is we have this weird filter that plays it in our own voice. So even though it started somewhere else, it's now in our own voice. And so we're hearing, okay, I'm hearing, I'm not good enough. I'll never amount to anything. And then what people tend to do is they let that person, that the owner of the voice drive the bus. We just sort of let go and go, okay, you're right. I can't do anything. Go ahead and take the wheel. So one of the things I do with clients is to really help them figure out the source of those voices. So we go back into their childhood. We go back into um, important relationships in their life. Who said those types of things? Because no baby is born with, you're not good enough, or you're too emotional, or what's wrong with you, or any of the negative things those voices can often say. Right. Um, And so just embodying them, creating them as individuals sitting on your bus I have, I have one client who likes to describe it as a committee. She's got this whole committee and there's a nice visual in the room. <laughs> and, and once you have an awareness of where they come from, the voice, it, it takes on a different quality. It's not as believable. And you can create a little space between, hey, me, the driver, and you who's yelling and trying to take over the wheel. Um, and, and you're able to have enough space. Sometimes you can talk back to the voice. Sometimes you can just breathe through. The voice will stop. There's other, there's lots of techniques to it, but the very first step is to get what those voice, who they are, what they're saying. So one way to do that, if you want to save a few bucks and don't go to therapy is that you get a journal and a piece of paper. I prefer paper and pen because your brain will do something different than it will with your keyboard, but you can, you can do that if you need to. And really just take 15 minutes and write down every sentence that those voices in your head say to you. So if you're like, well, I don't know, I can't just conjure it. Well, think of it, your most recent stressful experience or something and conjure it back up, conjure back the feeling, and then just listen. And the voices will remind you what they like to tell you. Hmm. And so then you're going, okay, whoa, I say that, I say that. And so here's the, I always tell people the most dangerous place on earth is between your two ears. Because if it doesn't get out and processed, and that can be writing, that can be speaking, um, it will. It, it's like there's a bizarre echo chamber in there, and things can get pretty toxic and messy. Oh yeah. Which is why why therapy works. People think, oh, it's this magic thing. No, actually, it's literally just the need for a human to say to another human, "Here's my story," and hear themselves say it, and go, "Whoa, is that really what I think? Is that really coming out of my mouth?" and working through all of that. And so if you're going to do anything on your own, it needs to be similarly like processing. Maybe it's with a good friend or a partner, but also just on your own, like, you know, what is going on in here? And if it feels like, oh my gosh, there's so many people on this bus, I cannot figure this out. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to just tell you your best friend will be your therapist because they will help you sort through all of that and get a handle on it so you're driving the bus. Maybe those voices don't disappear forever, but a handle on it so that it doesn't, you know, crash your bus for you. Well, you know, one tough customer there is the dad, probably, because typically men have sort of a, you know, a machismo sort of thing happening where they're like, eh, I don't need that. I got this. I don't need therapy. I'm, I'm, I'm a man. I can take care of that. What do you say to those guys? 
<laughs> well, okay. So I'll tell you my experience with men in therapy and it's, um, it's always surprising to, I think other people, but, um, now I'm used to it. But when a couple will come in, cause I, I work with couples as well. When a couple comes in, it's well, 98% of the time it's like this. Um, typically it was the woman's idea. She dragged him there and he's just kind of like, Ugh, I don't need this. And, and do I, do I want to go and talk about how you're right in front of a woman who's going to just agree with you? So they're not excited. Like this is not going to go well in their minds. Right? right. So they come in, their posture is just like, Oh, please, no, please. Um, and the wife is so excited because she thinks, Oh, it's a woman. She's going to understand me <laughs> and then be on my side, <laughs> which is not what couples counseling is by the way, everyone. So get that out of your head. It is not about <laughs> a person just picking and choosing which one of you is right. That's called a like a judge. (laughs) (laughs) That that is court, everybody. That is not a thing you want to be doing. Um, anyway, and so what has happened, and I would say it's the vast majority of cases, um, is I listen and I hear both of their sides. I make sure there's equal talking time. I'm, I'm the mediator in, in a lot of ways, and he's getting more out than he probably has in a long time. And this isn't, Mm. of course, all couples, but it tends to be the, the ones where the wife is dragging them in. And, suddenly he's feeling really good. Like I can say this stuff and it's safe to do this. And I'm fresh. Here's my frustrations and I'm not bad or broken. Like, because I don't, you know, I'm not, and and here's some tools and dudes love tools. There's, there's a whole, like, show me how to fix this. And it's like, yep, there's lots of ways to fix this. And the wife has, and, and so my challenge is always, making sure the wife is still happy <laughs> because the husband will typically buy in pretty quickly. And I, I think part of that is there's not a lot in society. Um, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of women have had many chances with girlfriends, maybe in other settings where we can express feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone, of course, no one's every anything all the time. But there's definitely more room for m- more emotional volatility or there's more room for it's OK that you're crying and that you're sad and we all come to comfort you, you know, and men especially American men have such a restricted emotional palate. It's like, all right, guys, you can be happy, angry, and horny. That's it. (laughs) What do you think that is about, about America? Because also for context, you spent quite a while living in Europe. Um, and now you're back in the States. Why do you think that is? I think, uh, well, I mean, I think there's a couple things. I think we, we have a definition of masculinity that is, you know, pretty, maybe, I don't know, old fashioned in some ways, but just sort of like, we're just kind of like, Ugh. I don't know. <laughs> that, that's how <laughs> articulate I am about this. That sound, I, I just, I'm sending that sound to Scott, by yeah, the way. Oh, please don't. No, I know. <laughs> um, but there really is a bit of like, you know, and, and it's better now for sure. I'm watching my, my boys in school and I'm seeing teachers respond in ways that are much more sort of emotionally, um, accurate instead of just like shutting down their emotional life. Right. And I think that that can happen. And I'll tell you as a parent, and I'm sure one day everyone listening will know this. If you haven't felt this yet, you just want your kid to stop crying. Sometimes, um, you're not thinking, Oh, it's a boy or it's a girl. How do I handle this? You're just like, quit it with the tears. It's 
like enough yep. and quit your boobing and let's move on or something. Right. And I think boys, and I know this actually, there's a lot of research to show this, that boys have historically been told again and again, not to show their emotions. Oh yeah. And then peers especially. So I think it's like, we're just kind of loud cowboys. I don't know. I don't know why we do it, but I, but there's my experience living in other places is it's definitely not as strong um, the definition of like manliness does not have to do with crying or not. Whereas here, I think it always has been, you know, there's a lot of generations where you got smacked across the face, you know, my grandpa's generation, my father's generation, where, you know, if you showed too much emotion, then you were physically harmed. That is going to do something for uh, the psyche of many generations who then raise the next generation. And even though maybe they're just not hitting anymore or whatever, there's still this just, is there room for the emotional life of boys? In fact, there's a great book. It's kind of old at this point, um, but it's called Raising Cain. And it's about, is it Raising Cain? That sounds wrong. Uh, I should have looked it I can look it up. Someone Google great. for me. Um, yeah. But it's basically taking care of the emotional life of boys okay. and how to raise them sort of with more emotional intelligence and with, you know, allowing them to feel the things that they're feeling and, and then tackling your own biases that they shouldn't be allowed to have some of these emotions. I think we do this to girls too. Um, but specifically, I think that's some of what's happening with boys. So when a guy comes into therapy, he has never done this before. He's never sat and said how he really feels and felt like it was safe to do. Yeah. And, and I think this is shifting, which is great. I see, I see a lot of progress in this area. Um, but I have, I, I, there's another dynamic too. I, my, my least favorite clients are doctors, <laughs> oh, um, but some, sure. sometimes they have to come in. And then when they do, it's a good two or three sessions of me proving I'm smart enough to them, um, because they don't believe anything's going to help them. And they're the smartest person on the planet. This is not all doctors, but man, they're, it's well, the ones I talk to. They're usually the smartest ones in the room and in, in whatever yeah. room that they're in most days. So, right. And so you imagine they're like, Oh, so this, and in their mind, girl is going to tell me how to improve my marriage or help my kid because it's never their yeah. problem, right? Um, and the, it's a real struggle. But what I have found with them is, is the longer I can work with them, and it's, it's like prying open, you know, 20 layers of an onion. They have, you know, I guess if they flick their knife wrong, they're going to murder someone, right? So they have to have a lot of ego in place to do that. And so that protective shell... It's really hard to crack. And I think men in, you know, sort of all walks of life are going to have a, a variation of whatever that shell might be. And so getting him into therapy is, um, for many, it's just so much relief yeah. that they don't have to act like they've got it all together all the time. And, um, and, and, you know, this applies to women as well who, you know, I, I've got to show that I am nailing all of this when all of us are just scrambling to be honest right sure sure and uh you know speaking of women postpartum depression is a thing um and that's really tough for a lot of people to get through but on both sides of the relationship uh do you have any suggestions to uh the dads listening or even the women who listen to this show that uh, on how to identify and how to deal with that really tumultuous time in a lot of people's lives yes and this is why um, well, it is very much tied to sort of men coming to therapy or opening up to 
sort of these more sort of delicate emotional situations is that often when postpartum will hit a couple, um, it is, it's completely the antithesis of logic for a guy. It Mm. just doesn't make any sense like that I can't fix it by saying that you do look beautiful or that you are a good mom or, you know, all of the things that we might think are like the logical answers to help someone feel better who is feeling terrible is by addressing the things they feel terrible about and we're going to make it better. And, you know, and it's literally the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do is to tell her to, that she's amazing. So, so I have a great list I found that I think can be a helpful way of hearing how the words are mixed up here. So, um, here's, it's an example of how postpartum, it really is a, it's a hijacking of your brain. Your brain is telling you, and, and so take anxiety or take depression. Depression has a very, you know, in and of itself is this thing, but it's a very severe form of this at a very vulnerable time in, in somebody's life, right? So it's, the onset can be right after birth up to a year of, I think it's even maybe more. And so you're very vulnerable. Your sleep is totally screwed up. You're exhausted. And, you know, so it's hitting at such a a difficult time, right? And so your brain gets completely hijacked. The thoughts that are going through your brain, you cannot help them. And if your spouse is saying things like, oh, don't think that, or, oh, that's, that's crazy talk, or no, you're not that way. It it may work for you, but when your brain has been hijacked, none of that works. So here's an example of like sort of what they're up against. So I want to sort of play that out first. Yeah. So for example, if you tell her you love her, she won't believe you. If you tell her she's a good mother, she think, she'll think you're just saying that to make her feel better. If you tell her she's beautiful, she'll assume you're lying. If you tell her not to worry about anything, she'll think you have no idea how bad she feels. If you tell her, come home early, you'll come home early to help her, she'll feel guilty. If you tell her you have to work late, she'll think you don't care. So you literally can't win is what this is, right? Yeah. And most men don't do great in the I can't win <laughs> category. Oh, I, I, you're saying this and it's giving me anxiety because I'm like, well, right. then like, what do you do? <laughs> right, right. And it really is that feeling of like, I don't know what to do. So unfortunately, what folks tend to do is just continue to do the thing that makes them think like it's working. And so it might be, for example, these are all the wrong things. So I'm going to give you some wrong things. Okay. Um, never, never say you should get over this. Oof. Never say you're tired of her feeling this way. Um, never say this should be the happiest time of her life. Never. Um, <laughs> oh. never, te- never tell her you liked her better the way she was before. Never say snap out of it. Never say just get up and go on a walk. That'll fix it. Nothing nothing that will fix. Do not tell her to lose weight, color her hair, buy new clothes. None of those things. Don't say all new mothers feel this way. Do not say it's a phase. Do not tell her, well, you wanted a baby. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, God. You're saying all yeah. this is like cringeworthy. Oh, it's all terrible. And I'm going to say, you're, you're probably thinking, well, only a jerk would say that. No, you're going to feel this way. Yes, yes, yes. It's going course. to be so frustrating. But here's here's the cool part. And I'll, I'll tell you the things to say. So yeah. I will give you, I'll give you answers. But let me just back up with a little research here. Sure. That we know a woman's depression, especially postpartum depression, will improve markedly with consistent support of her significant other. So though it may feel like you're powerless, you're incredibly powerful. But if you have the wrong tools, 
Like if you had a hammer and you really need a delicate scalpel, <laughs> you are going to ruin things, right? Yeah. And so you really just need to figure out the right tool. Um, and, you know, so a couple other things. You do not pretend that depression will just go away or deny that it's happening. That will make recovery twice as long. And this is where we get back to full circle to the stigma of needing help mm-hmm. is People love denial. Denial is our favorite place to live, right? Which is like, if I just close my eyes and tomorrow this will be gone, this isn't real or it's a temporary, you know, not taking it seriously and not getting help just makes things harder and longer. Um, and that, like demanding her to recover is also a big no-no and it's just going to make things um, longer. Also being hard on yourself that you're failing, makes things last longer and, and make it harder. That's um, that's probably really hard for a lot yes. of guys to do, especially with this whole like, oh, I can't just fix it. Right. Mentality. Right. So And that is that is the torture of this for sure. But here's what you can do. And this is why I think everyone should go to therapy. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. because you really, you know, in your own work, you you increase your emotional intelligence, which is I'm using that term and is, let me just define it really quickly is this ability to understand your own emotional experiences and move and make decisions and create scenarios and draw boundaries so that you can maintain emotional health. So you have a good sense of it. You're intelligent about your own situation. And then also that extends to others. Um, and so when you have a grasp on your emotional stuff, then it's much easier to support someone else in their emotional stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's some just, if you're not going to go to therapy, you just got to trust me on this. And this is what I do with men often in therapy. I say, okay, here is the tool to fix this. And then I teach them how to listen. And sometimes I give them suckers to put into their mouths. <laughs> oh, that's great. And I say, <laughs> don't take that out of your mouth. Um And then when she seems like she's asking you to fix it, take a long suck on that sucker. (laughs) Don't answer yet. And then just see, like watch her, be a student of how she's talking. You will find that half the time people just want to be heard and they just want to be validated and they just want to know that somebody cares about them. They don't want the answer. So one thing you can even do with your partner is say, I, I'm going to do my best to just listen and be here for you and, you know, and do all those things. If you ever feel like you need me to help fix something, like go do the dishes, will you let me know, Hey, this is the thing now, listen, I want you to fix it. And then, okay, great. I'll go do that thing. But most of the time that is not where their brains are going, especially during postpartum. Mm. Um, so here's some examples of things you can say to her, um, that, that could help. Um, Tell her you know she feels terrible. So when somebody discounts how badly you feel by saying, oh, it'll get better, or this is temporary, I mean, it's just discounting that this is really terrible. And if you go to someone and say, wow, that's, that seems really hard, that's, that's really terrible, they will just, you'll see their shoulders drop like, oh my gosh, someone sees me and hears me. Sure. And so that's huge. Another one is, you know, you can say things will get better, but it doesn't have to be right this minute and it's going to be okay. But right now it's okay to feel terrible. And so you're sort of giving permission and there's a little hope in there as well. Um, and then, you know, telling her she's doing the right things to get better. So 
which includes therapy and medication people. So like if you're in this category and you're suffering, you go now, right, right now. Um, and the other thing is, you know, you can still be a good mother and feel terrible. That's literally the definition of motherhood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) If you're a good mother, you're also feeling terrible, at least part of it. Right. Okay. And then tell her it's okay to make mistakes. Tell her she doesn't have to do everything perfectly. Remind her that, you know, you know how hard she's working at this right now and it's enough. Um, tell her or let her know what she needs you to do to help. Um, tell her, let's say, you know, she's doing the best she can, that you love her. The baby will be fine. So many women are just absolutely certain that they are damaging this baby permanently and they are not. Mm. And so that's really hard. You're not going to argue with that there, you know, um, but there is some reassurance that I think could go a long way. Um, and then here is the big one. And maybe you guys have talked about this on your, on the podcast about just sort of the share of household chores. Have you, have you had some episodes on uh, how know, to navigate chores yet? I don't think we have. So go ahead, educate us. Okay. Lay it down. So this, this is a sort of modern marriages still are plagued by um, a pretty big disparity when, when we look at the numbers and the research behind this is you've got, you know, a lot of people working outside of the home, um, sharing childcare, and then some people working from home and then some in daycare. I mean, it's all sorts, right? There is no 1950s family, uh, ideal happening anymore. And, and what we're finding is that women are still doing the lion's share of all the other stuff. So they go to work all day and they come home, they are still doing the cooking and the shopping and the cleaning and the, you know, so, and they call it the second shift, right? So they're still doing that. And I think there's a lot of men stepping up and I think it's changing and I think, you know, that's awesome. Um, but what ends up happening, and this is something I hear often in my practice is what's called emotional labor is not being, um, shared very well. And that would be, for example, and this is a great way to answer it. So if you have a child, um, and their birthday is coming, and you and your spouse sit down, you both write down what each of you have to do for that birthday. And when one of you writes, go by the invitations, get all of the names and addresses of all the kids, find out who my kid wants to invite, what the cake is, where the location is, um, what the birthday present is, and what day and time and all of that. And the other one writes down, show up for the birthday party. Then you can see there's a massive um, sort of difference in emotional labor. It's not maybe it's the thinking through, it's the planning, it's the feeling in charge of. And so I'm hearing women who, you know, and, and they feel really guilty about this. They're like, my husband's awesome. He changes diapers. He does all the stuff that I think I want him to do. And I still feel like I'm doing this all alone. It has a lot to do with the stuff going on in their, their head, the lists. And so, um, in fact, I, I'll give you a reference to this. It's, I can give it to you in a link, I guess. Would that be the best? Sure, um, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. I did a, um, now I have to find it on my own website because it's been <laughs> a while. But anyway, I did a um, a series of little small podcasts. And actually, you can hear a few of them. I'm walking around the cold streets of Sweden while I'm recording it. <laughs> Um, so I have fond memories of this. Anyway, um, it's about the mental load. And I had a, a group of women come to me and s- talking about this and they're very concerned and frustrated and wanted some help doing this. And so, um, I put together a sort of a series of podcasts to do with your partner about emotional labor. If you're feeling overwhelmed, if you're feeling like this isn't equal and you do a a couple of 
cool exercises together. And then, um, you kind of start to figure out who has the mental load and what can we do? Cause typically these are like, you know, awesome, engaged dads who want to do all the good stuff and the right stuff. And sometimes this is switched to, by the way, this isn't purely gender based. Oh, sure. The, sure, yeah. the research does show that it's more, more often women than men, right. but, um, there's going to be couples where it's just the flip, right? But this this is a way to sort of get everybody on the same page about what this thing is and what we can do about it. Um, and it gives you some articles to read and stuff. So I will just send that on over well, to you. Yeah, like that is so, – so that's actually very, very much relevant to a very uh, recent situation that Deanna and I just dealt with. Because in a lot of cases, I feel like, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff and, you know, Deanna won't care that I'm talking about this. But, you know, like okay. I, I've – I that I uh, – you know, I take care of, of Aria quite a bit and, you know, I'm always taking care of her in the evening, you know, putting her to bed and all this other stuff. And Deanna, um, one of the things that she says is, I'm so appreciative of the of that, that you're doing that. But, you know, what I really need is this. And, and what that this is, is kind of the thinking ahead to yeah. more of the stuff that she is subconsciously listing out in her head. And and I'm just not a list maker. I'm right. not. Like, that's just not how I'm wired. And for Deanna, that's frustrating. So, I, you know, um, I, I hear that and I and I try to you know, uh, improve and we talk about it and, and it's healthy and everything. But, um, you know, those are, that, that's a very, uh, what you had mentioned, like hit home for me because I'm like, yeah, that is totally, uh, right there dealing with what Deanna and I are doing. Cause you know, I'm sitting here trying to, you know, do the dad thing. Like you were talking about changing the diapers. Right. I'm playing with Aria. I'm feeding her and like doing all this other stuff. But then there, there's so many more things on that list that I'm just not aware of because they're just in Deanna's head. Right. And, and so she has a role to play in, in transferring that. And I think, um, first it has to be recognized that that's what's happening because I think a lot of men can just feel really unappreciated. Like, are you kidding? I've changed a thousand diapers. My dad didn't change one. Look at the progress and, oh, yeah. and my heart's in the right way, place. And I am, I'm a feminist too, you know? And, and, <laughs> yes. and so then we're still having these arguments and you're thinking, wait a minute, back up. Shouldn't this be better? And it has a lot to do with this concept. So there's a there's a article listed at the bottom of of the various little things there um, that kind of started it all, and it's and it's an example. And I think it's really helpful for men to read. So my husband is the king of feminist ideology, and like he's a fantastic dad, and is just there. And when he read it, he said he learned so much about what was happening. Oh, I did. And it, he's like, wow, it explains so much. And I, you know, and I thought. I thought I've explained this to you. So again, here's an example of supposedly someone who knows what they're doing. Still, we're missing it. And I think it's because a little bit of energy towards solving this doesn't mean it's going to be fixed right away, but it starts to be part of your conversation of, so for example, Mother's Day tip, everyone, I know it just passed. You got to do this next year. Do not ask your wife what she wants to eat, where she wants to go what she wants to do, because here's the exact, so you think that's the right thing. The right thing is to relieve her burden that day, make sure she just feels loved and supported. And I don't want to get it wrong. So I'm going to ask her what she wants for dinner, or I'm going to ask her if she'd like to go to this park. And, and what she really wants is to not make a single dang decision. And that's <laughs> yeah. because that mental load, she never has a break from it. So you're just right there asking her to put more stuff on her plate by answering your question. So just even if it's the worst restaurant in the world, she will be thrilled not to have to have decided. Right. So 
Um, so anyway, that's kind of a fun, it's, it's, I'm not making it sound very fun, but it's a fun way to kind of navigate that with your partner a little bit about those things. Cause it's, it's such a tricky, it's such a tricky balance. And, you know, we're all kind of navigating modern marriage, you know, in real time. And it's, it's a different, it's a different landscape and yeah. we don't have a, a lot of, uh, examples that behind us of what people did and what has worked and you know so it's so stay hydrated you know? yeah and I, i'm a big i'm a big believer that it's always a work in progress and people need to be willing to put in the work and i think I, i'm i love this sort of stuff like this is why i'm a sucker for like self-help books because i love reading and being like oh that's a new thing i could try and right. try to <laughs> implement it in my life um no that's cool now i i want to um end the show on just your tips and tricks tips and tricks isn't the right word let me rephrase that what are the right ways to identify uh when your child may need to uh have therapy well one thing um there's going to be some hints <laughs> and here's the here's the challenge is that we're sort of wired to think our kids are the cutest and so we might miss some signs uh earlier than say our good friends might. I don't know what or, you're talking about, Wendy. Uh, right. You know, Aria is absolutely perfect and <laughs> beautiful and great. Yeah. Yeah. And she never misbehaves. No. And there is well, actually now that about. you meant now that you mention it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so it's it's really it it is it is a it's like a um it's like a glitch in the system that actually protects the young, right? Like there's something about they look a little bit like us, of course. And we're willing to like jump in front of a bus for them. So we can't really see them as very flawed very quickly. Now, when they're teenagers and they're gangly and they don't look like you anymore and you're like, what is this monster? It's much easier to see that. But when they're young, <laughs> we we don't see it. We just don't. And And so to be open to some of the clues and you're going to get hints from other parents and you're going to get hints as you watch your child interact. Um... And then it will start to get so obvious you can't deny it anymore. Um, so being humble is really helpful because mm. I think what happens is we get really defensive. We get, we're scared. We don't want to hear anything. And so we may not catch on to some of the early things that are going badly um, for the kid. So an example might be your kid just cannot self-soothe. They're just like crying constantly. Um, and they're, you know, four or five. And you're like, okay. So that's one thing when they're a little bit younger and okay, now we're getting a little older and I'm looking at their peers who can all sort of settle themselves. I wonder what that's about. And so think of it as you have a pediatrician for a reason, right? You go to the pediatrician because we're just going to check to make sure developmentally things are going right. We're going to just check this or that. So your pediatrician might be a, a great source for this. Just, I mean, I just recently went to a, a new pediatrician here and the questions were all about psychosocial, mental health, physical well-being. It was oh, wow. all around child stuff. And I was like, wow, you would catch most stuff with these surveys. So they're going to be a great resource. Um, and here's another thing about this is that if you don't feel like you're getting it, like, I don't know how to help this kid or parent this kid. Maybe nothing's wrong with the kid. It's that you're struggling to feel attached to them hmm. or you're worried, you know, whatever. Some of those can be the reasons to, to reach out. Um, if you can afford it and it's available to you and, you know, heaven hope you have nice insurance or something, you go a couple visits, you get great tools, and then you just have a resource in your pocket. So if anything else comes up, it's just a smart way to parent. 
Um, you know, I know some people are just like that, that. You don't do that. Kids are, they're fine. Don't worry about And yeah, probably true. But if you, you know, what's going to hurt to have you have a little more information? Um, you know, I, I'll tell you when I have clients come in and this is true when I was working with kids as well, who come in at the beginning of a problem, then we have a couple sessions in, they've got my card. They call me once a year just to check and make sure things are okay. It's not a big deal, mm. but it's the problem when they wait. I, this is very true with couples. The average couple will wait seven years of having problems before they seek help. So by the time they come to you as a clinician, you're, you're basically hoping you had a magic wand. I mean, so much damage has already been done in those seven years. But if we had started about the first year of problems, then we go on a totally different path and have a totally different outcome. So it really, it's not to scare anybody, but it's just to sort of give them, like, don't overly worry about what it means and fight the stigma. Tell your kids to brag about it, you know, like talk about it healthily at home. Hey, we go to the orthodontist to get our teeth straight. We go to the dentist to fill our cavities. We go to church to learn this thing. Or, you know, you can, all the things in your life, we have this person who is like an expert on kids and they have these cool toys. It's really fun to go. And it just helps mommy and learn how to better help you and you be feel good. And so there's a way to do this that has zero stigma attached, but you kind of have to tackle your own history there a little bit. That is super, super helpful. Um, Wendy, thank you very much for all this wisdom. And I want to give uh, you an opportunity to pimp whatever you got. You want to share how people can uh, can find you and maybe even uh, chat with you? Yeah, I'm like the worst at pimping. Um, <laughs> uh, I did send you a link. You can post that of the mental load exercise you guys can do. And that's on therapythursdays.com. And I get emails through there. It's got a whole lot of old posts because I moved across the ocean. So I've not picked that back up yet. But um, you can email me questions there. Contact me through that. Um, that's probably the best place to find me. And then there's lots of free information. And then, of course, this thing that I'm kind of proud of, the little mental load thing, because I think it really, really helps with oh, people's marriages. I can't wait to check it out. All right. And also, you can uh, check out frogpants.com slash TMS to learn about the morning stream. Tune in uh, on Thursdays when Wendy is there. Uh, you are my absolute favorite. Segment. I, I mean, I love the show and everything, but like you being on that part of the show, it's just seriously such a treat. And I learn something new myself every single Thursday. So thanks oh, for what you awesome. do. Thank you. All right. So our guest again has been Wendy. Thank you again for being here. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Wendy Dunford for just an awesome conversation. So much information. I hope you guys found that tremendously valuable. And if you'd like to chime in on the conversation, you can email the dad chronicle podcast at gmail.com. I will also have a link to therapythursdays.com in the show notes and specifically uh, to the mental load um, article that she was talking about. I hope you guys find that valuable. I will be checking it out as well. Listen to past episodes by going to thedadchronicle.com and you can become a patron by just clicking that become a patron button at the top. All of your support is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to follow me on social media, you can do so by just searching for at Alex Albisu, last name is spelled A-L-B as in boy, I-S is in Sam, you, uh, on really any social media platform. I'm on Twitter a lot. I'm on Instagram. So uh, do so and uh, follow me on this adventure of fatherhood. 
Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed today's episode. I will see you guys next time. If you like this show, check out more great content at incastmedianetwork.com.